You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, um, like Michael said, we're going through a series in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is all about the earliest Christians, and particularly the earliest churches. And this morning we zoom in on perhaps my favorite church in the entire Bible. You know, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. it's my favorite church in the Bible, which is, I know it's kind of scandalous saying. It's like saying I already have a favorite song of the new Kendrick Lamar album, but I do. I do. And I have a favorite church in the Bible. And it is the church in Antioch. Excuse me, the church in Antioch. I'm so choked up. I'm so excited. You know, Ed Stetzer says uh, that the most important moment in church planning history was the founding of the church of Antioch. And so my hope for RCC is that we would grow up into a church that looks like this one. Now, to fully understand this church, we need to understand the context, the, the, the city that this church grew up in. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had 500,000 people, which is about 100,000 people short of Baltimore City. And it was remarkably diverse and urban, even by today's standards. Antioch was filled with Greeks and Romans and Syrians and Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Egyptians and Africans and Indians and Asians. Urban, diverse, big city. Which makes sense that it was pluralistic religiously. There were so many gods to worship in Antioch that some called it the abode of the gods. There were as many gods as people, some said. And this resulted in the city being known as a very immoral city. It was said to have the morals of Daphne. I don't know who Daphne is, but she sounds like a scandalous gal. (laughs) Sounds like she should be here this morning. Even Rome said Antioch was immoral. Rome said Antioch was immoral. So we get a lot of similarities here to the city of Baltimore. Dense, urban, diverse, all kinds of religions and beliefs. All of these factors made Antioch a great place for a new church plant because the light of Jesus Christ shines the brightest in the darkest places. And it's in this city that the believers are first called Christians. If you're a Christian, do you know that wasn't actually other Christians that called themselves that? It was unbelievers in the city of Antioch that saw this group of people and said, they're Christians, they're little Christ. And it's at this church in Antioch where the launching pad for worldwide missions begins. Antioch becomes a sending church that plants churches all around the world. John Stott notes, no more appropriate place could be imagined, either as the venue for the first international church or as a springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. You see, it's the church in Antioch, not the mother church in Jerusalem, that really changed the world. The Jerusalem church was wonderful, I mean, the Spirit descended, and they grew, and it was awesome, but they had some real partiality issues. They struggled getting along with and reaching really lost people. You know, people who would never step into church, they struggled to reach those kinds of people. They were a little snooty, a little cliquish. You see, up until this moment, the church throughout the world had only reached people who agreed that the Bible was the Word of God, who affirmed the Old Testament. But it's at the church in Antioch that the really lost people started coming to know Jesus. The church in Antioch was an international church full of really broken people. And the question is, 
How did this church in this really bad city grow so healthily and so quickly and have such an impact? What was the key ingredients of this wonderful stew? And the answer is the wonderful people. You see, a church is simply a collection of people. And this church has some pretty wonderful, amazing folks. The quality and impact of a church will always be determined by the quality and impact of its membership, you and I. And we see that they had some pretty extraordinary members here. Now, I want you to see six different qualities or six different adjectives that describe the different types of people in this church in Antioch. You'll see different groups of people and what they did. And my hope is that we would embody all six of these characteristics. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, God wants you to be all these things and maybe even specialize in one of them as you serve the church. And the good news is that Jesus Christ doesn't leave you on your own to do those things. He gives you the power and the pattern to be these things. And so my hope for you and I this morning, church members, is that our church would look like this. And we'd be, we'd be ultimately encouraged how Jesus is each of these things for us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, my hope for you is that you would become all these things through faith in Christ. And that we hope to be all these things for you. And maybe you're checking our church out. This is kind of who we hope to be. So let's jump in. Number one, the church in Antioch, a really healthy gospel church is full of, number one, evangelists, like the men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Look at verse 19. And the first thing we notice is that this church was sold out to reach lost people with the gospel. They were evangelists. In fact, did you know this church was born because just regular people shared the gospel and they grew and it became a church family? Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So what this means is that there were these refugee Christians fleeing Jerusalem because the church was being persecuted. And a lot of these refugee Christians went to different parts of the world, but they only shared the gospel with people that agreed the Bible was the word of God to other Jews or half-Jews, right? They were a little nervous about the really broken, Gentile, far-from-God people. They were resistant to God's global mission. But Antioch, something new happened. Look at verse 20. But there were some men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Who are the Hellenists? Hellenists are Gentiles. They're Greeks. They're the really godless folks, the pagans. These are the kind of people who would never come to a church building. Like the folks who go to strip clubs. The folks who are so obsessed with their job that their job becomes their sort of new God. You know, the guy in Patterson Park on a weeknight who's chugging Natty Bows before he hits a softball. Like those kind of people. We, we, we interact with a lot of those types of people, don't we? Those are the people the church in Antioch was reaching. People never would come to church naturally. So these Christians make their way into Antioch, this city of other gods, this city similar to Baltimore, a city not looking for Jesus or wanting Jesus. And these disciples aren't going to the synagogues. They're not going to the religious centers. They're going to where the lost people are, to the streets, to the marketplaces, to the populated areas of the city, telling them, everyone, about the Lord Jesus, how faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ brings eternal life. And their evangelism was effective. Verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That might be my favorite description of a church ever. The hand of the Lord was with them. There are a lot of things to shoot for as a church. I think that's the thing I want the most. The hand of the Lord is with them. 
There are a lot of things to be excited about, but there is nothing more exciting than when you feel like God is in this room, his hand is on us doing something here. And isn't that encouraging? Like, hey, guys, how did your church grow so fast? Like, you're reaching all these lost people. What happened? The hand of the Lord was on us. Kind of takes some pressure off, doesn't it? You don't have to preach a TED Talk. You can just faithfully share, and God's hand will lead them to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, I'm really discouraged. I'm really purposeless right now. I feel really hopeless. I could use the hand of God on my life. Well, why don't you do what they did? Step up and share the gospel. Be an evangelist and watch the hand of God fall on you. Now, I want you to notice two things about these evangelistic Christians in this new church. They were two things, unknown and unafraid. Unknown and unafraid. Notice who's doing the evangelism. It says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. I mean, this is the most important church in Acts. The most important church probably in the history of Christendom. And who started this thing? checking my notes here. We have no idea. We don't even get their names. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene. And that brings up a really important question to us, doesn't it? Are you content to be a hardworking nobody in the church? I'll be honest, if somebody asked, hey, who started that church in Baltimore, Redemption City Church? Some man I'd be like, I did. Are you okay if you grind for a lifetime and no one knows your name? Everyone in our culture is trying to get their name on some billboard or trending on TikTok. But the men God highlights here, we don't even know their names. Can we, like the father of missions, Nicholas Zinzendorf, say, we want to preach the gospel die and be forgotten because we only want people to know one name and his name is Jesus you see the most important people in the church are not necessarily the most known don't confuse popularity with significance this world changing church got started because some nobodies with no leadership title were faithful to witness to their lost neighbors and God honored that his hand was with them in that So these unsung, unknown men are a model for us to follow. We are glad to serve and to pray and to evangelize when no one is looking because we are content to know that the name above all names, he knows our name and he rewards our work, even when no one else does. They're unknown evangelists, and secondly, they're unafraid evangelists. See, they ain't shook. They're unafraid. These Christians enter a really dark, immoral city, and they develop real, genuine relationships with non-Christians in order to reach them with the gospel. And to do that, they have to speak in a language that non-Christians can understand. They have to be mavericks, as Tim Keller says, or John Stock calls them daring spirits. We need more daring spirits in the church. They had to connect with people who had never been to a church gathering before. These are the kind of Christians who aren't offended when they hear a cuss word. Or when they're at a bar and someone serves a shot, they're not like, oh, Satan's juice. Keep this away from me. You see, these are kind of Christians who can actually genuinely connect with people who have nothing in common with them. 
And this is why so many deeply religious people struggle with evangelism. It's because they're so culturally ingrained in just being around other Christians and speaking Christianese and on Friday nights playing board games with other Christians. Not mafia because we have to lie in mafia. Wouldn't want to do that. We'll play Settlers of Catan. I'll trade you my brick for your, your wood. Jesus would do it, so you should do it. This is what we do. And no wonder when we, can, like we actually meet a Hindu at Johns Hopkins, we have no idea how to connect with this person. You know, when we, when we meet an agnostic who's partying and fell's point, we have no idea like, how to actually relationally connect with this person to then share the gospel with them. To be an Antiochian church, we have to be unafraid. We have to want to be around non-Christians, people who perhaps even offend us a little bit, and genuinely love them. We have to cater our gospel communities to be outward-facing, not inward-facing. You know, when, I, when, I, when we planted this church, I assumed that people knew, like, Christians are trying to reach unbelievers, but I've been shocked. Like, so many Christians just want to hang out with other Christians, and they get offended when they, we actually have to grow and add more unbelievers. Like, this is, this is the whole point of why we exist. I mean, the, the local church is the only institution in the world that's focused on its non-members, See, to, to really reach really, really lost people with the gospel, you have to be able to connect with them for them to be able to feel your love, to, sh- to be able to speak in a way they can understand so they know that the gospel really provides the acceptance they're looking for in that boyfriend or girlfriend that isn't giving it to them, that their job really can't give them the hope that they long for. Only Jesus can. You have to be able to connect with people and share in a way they can understand. And there is a war being fought right now, a spiritual war, and it is not won by retreating. It's won by engaging. Jesus says in the Gospels, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. You ever think about that verse? The gates of hell will not stand against the church. You know, gates are a defensive mechanism. They're not, see, Satan, Jesus says, is not on offense, he's on defense. And the church is on cosmic offense, taking his territory. We're storming the gates of hell, rescuing people from the fires of hell with the grace of Jesus. You don't reach a city and change lives by having a bomb shelter philosophy where we hunker down and try and avoid sinners. Here's what I found too. When Christians do that, they hunker down and just hang out with each other. There's a ton of sin pops up there. And we tend to look a lot like the rest of the world. But when we open up our lives and really reach out to lost people, God somehow makes us more holy. And we tend to enjoy life more. Man, we need to have a Michael Jordan in the fourth quarter mindset when it comes to reaching darkness and lostness in this city. Give me the ball. I want to talk to that guy. I want to invite him to the gathering. We're not trying to avoid lost people. And this is what Jesus was, wasn't he? I mean, this guy was the ultimate evangelist, the ultimate unafraid cultural engager. He was rebuked constantly by religious people for pushing the boundaries too far. Hey, Jesus, who who are you hanging out with tonight? A couple prostitutes. Sorry, what? He hung out with women who slept with men for money. You want to come over for dinner? I mean, how would you feel if I told you, who are you hanging out with tonight? Oh, Mary, she's on the corner, but then afterwards she's coming over to hang out with me. What would you say? 
That's what Jesus did. Jesus met Matthew the tax collector, this guy who was stealing money from his people. He didn't meet Matthew at the synagogue. He met Matthew at his tax collector's booth. I mean, that's like meeting a drug dealer at his drug corner. Jesus was on offense, reaching and engaging the city. Not saying, here's an invite card, hope you can meet me there at church so then we can talk about Jesus. He reached out to Zacchaeus, this guy no one liked, at a tree. Start a tree ministry at RCC. We're going out to the parks and the forest and sharing Jesus. We're not that weird, okay? Jesus did it. You see, to, be, to really be a church and to be a person that's changing the city, you have to have the mindset of Jesus, the on-offense, Steph Curry, on, at three-point line, mindset. Jesus was a heat-seeking missile going after sinful people, loving them, inviting them in, sharing good news with them. And that's such good news for us sinners, right? Like, praise God he went after sinners, because without him coming after me, where would I be? Far from the family of God. And so we go do likewise, because he did it for us. If we're going to be a church like Jesus, a church like Antioch, we need to be willing to be unknown and be willing to be unafraid evangelists. The way I like putting it regularly is we, we need to be a church of ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. And so we go to the coffee shop, we go to the basketball court, we go to the next door neighbor, we go to the book club, we go to the university, we even go to the bar sometimes so that we can engage with people far from God and introduce, introduce them to the person that changed our lives. We need to be a church of evangelists like the men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Now, secondly, if we're going to be a church like Antioch, we also need to be a church of encouragers. Someone say amen. Oh, come on. Someone say amen. amen. They're my encouragers. Let's go. We need to be a church of encouragers. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So Barnabas is this early church leader in the you know, Jerusalem area. And the church hears about all this wonderful work going on in Antioch, and they send Barnabas as like quality control to check out, is this church in Antioch legit? And so Barnabas goes to check it out, kind of like, you know, when you get in your Chipotle bowl and you ask for guacamole, you inspect, like, did they give me enough guacamole? Is this like a legit Chipotle bowl? That's what Barnabas is doing. This is a great illustration. I'm so proud of that. I just come up with that off the head. Anyway, he's checking, does, is this church legit? And he ends up joining the church in Antioch. And look at the spirit in which Barnabas joins this church. This is the spirit you should have as you consider joining RCC or any, any other church. Barnabas, when he came and saw the grace of God at the church in Antioch, he was glad. That's what the grace of God does to us, doesn't it? It makes us glad. And he exhorted them. I'm going to zoom in on that verse and that word in just a second. He exhorted them. All to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord as a result. So what we have here is Barnabas, Mr. Quality Control, loves people. The name Barnabas actually means son of encouragement or son of comfort. And when he got to this new church and joined it, what did he do? It says, the text says he exhorted them. It's not a word we use very often, is it? Well, if you read four different English translations of the Bible, you'll find four different words to describe that word exhorted. Some say encourage, some say Barnabas ur urged them. 
Whenever you see different translations in English differing on the translation on, of this English word, it's because the Greek word, the original word, has a lexical range that's too rich and too broad and too multidimensional to be conveyed by one single English word. And when you find something like that, you know, like, this is a word that needs to be pondered on. There's no one English word that can fully describe what, what it means when it says Barnabas exhorted them. This Greek word, this original word, is the Greek word parakaleo. And there's two parts to it, para and kaleo. Para means to come alongside. We have the word para as a prefix in the English, you know, like a paramedic or a paratrooper. Someone who comes alongside and is sympathetic with your struggle, who is next to you, who's near you, who helps you. And kaleo, parakaleo, means, kaleo means to call, to point people towards a goal or towards a truth. Now, do you see the tension between those two words? They tend to be opposites, don't they? That's why it's so hard to fully understand and translate. It's a strong, tender word. To call is a forceful thing. It's to command, you need to go here. This is what you need to believe. It almost means to preach. But on the other hand, the word para means being sympathetic. It means being gentle. It means being tender, standing with someone as they are. It's too strong a word to just mean encouragement, and it's too tender of a word to just mean exhort or preach. It's this sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. It's like this perfect cocktail of truth and love. It's to come alongside and tenderly attach yourself to someone and commit to pointing them to the truth. We could use some friends like that, right? Now notice, the text says Barnabas encouraged them, he, he he exhorted them, he parakaleoed them for or because, why? He was a good man. I love that little addition, right? Like, how about that for a definition of a good man, a parakaleo? It's not how much you can bench. A good man isn't determined by what kind of car you own. A good man isn't determined by what tax bracket you're in or how many girls like you. A good man is a parakaleo, a man who comes alongside those in his life and stays and then gently points them to the truth. It's to be a man that is intensely truthful and yet intensely kind. A good man loves. He paras. He, he kisses his kids a lot. He hugs other church members. And here's a crazy idea for men nowadays. He's not afraid to commit. He's not afraid to commit to the people in his life. He's not going to date you for three years and live at your house, or you live with him, and just play this dating game with you. You know, men today have a commitment phobia. Men can't decide between PlayStation or Xbox. How are they going to pick a wife? You know, no wonder so many men refuse to para, to commit. Who, when things get hard, they bail on their families and their kids. A good man is like Barnabas, he paras, he stays. You see, a parakaleo man doesn't just stay, but he speaks the truth. He doesn't just love his wife after he covenants with her. He doesn't just show up at his kids' soccer games. He doesn't just commit to a church and serve and stay. He speaks truth regardless of the consequences. He's like a paratrooper for the church. That's a good man, Scripture says. If you're here in this morning and you're a single woman, do not settle for anything less than a parakaleo man, or you will reap the consequences. But if we're being honest, 
I'm being honest, we all fall short of being a true parakaleo, don't we? We all fall off the parakaletic beam one way or the other. You know, our, our personalities tend to be either too affirming and not direct enough or too harsh and not loving enough. I know there's some people in this room who are the affirmers, the encouragers, who are good at the para but bad at the kaleo. You know, your friend says, I'm thinking about quitting my job, moving and joining the circus. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah, the tigers will love you. Perfectly fits your frame to work with tigers. Yeah, you need to work on the kaleo, the calling out. Some of you, though, tend to speak the truth not gently, just a little too bluntly. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I were struggling because we just had our second kid, and we just, uh, we were doing fine personally, just, it was a lot having two kids at once, and, and our laundry was piling up, and one of our members of our church offered to come and, and do the laundry for us, and that, that's pretty intimate for somebody to come over and do your laundry, because, you know, there's some, sometimes there could be some marks in certain places that you're not really proud of, you know what I'm talking about, in my laundry, uh, not, not me, not me, uh, I'm just kidding. you get the idea, right? Like, so my wife, who's, you know, like many wives, is like, no, I don't want them to have to come over and do our laundry. Like, that's, that's too much. And I said, honey, we need help. That's stupid. They're going to come and do our laundry. And that worked great. So she said yes and, and completely agreed. No, that worked horribly. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Here's my point is I leaned too hard on the kaleo, the calling outside, the, the speaking truth. I wasn't gentle. I wasn't para. I wasn't with her. We all lean too heavily on one side of the beam, cowardice or harshness. Here's good news. God doesn't leave us alone to sort it out by ourselves. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is called in the Greek in the New Testament? The paraclete. The form of the parakaleo. It's the help of God as a person in us. God doesn't just come alongside you to hold your hand, God comes within you to change your heart, to make you like him. He, he's not just next to you, he's in you, speaking the truth boldly to you, to make you like Jesus. And then more than that, Jesus is the ultimate paraclete, isn't he? He was committed to come alongside us in a way no one else has, and he was committed to speaking the truth to us like no one else has. Jesus was so unafraid to come alongside next to us that he says to his people, I will never leave or forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. No one can snatch you out of my hand. And yet at the same time, he's so committed to the truth. He's so committed to our highest good that he can look at his disciples in the face and say, unless you're willing to leave your houses and your mothers and fathers and your brothers and sisters and your farms and your children, you cannot be my disciple. And maybe you look at Barnabas' example and you look at Jesus' example and say, I'm not there. I'm a people pleaser or I'm way too harsh. Maybe you look at this good man, Barnabas, and say, I'm not a good man. Well, here's some good news. You have a good man who stood in your place. You know, 1 John 2, 1 says, if anyone sins, we have a what? We have an advocate. You know what that word advocate is in the text? If anyone sins, we have a parakaleo. We have an advocate who, who doesn't just come live within us or stand beside us, but one who stands in our place for us. Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God and says, Father, I know they're sinful. I know they deserve your justice. Take my blood as a substitute to make them clean. 
And the gospel is now that when the, the Father sees you, he sees a perfectly loving person and a perfectly truthful person who's unafraid of, of disappointing people because Jesus' life has been attributed to you. And see, that good news, Jesus being the true paraclete for us, changed Barnabas, and it made him an asset to the church. The text says Barnabas was full of what? The, para, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And he's full of faith. Barnabas is full of faith in what? Faith in the ultimate paracleo, Jesus. Faith is what unites us with Christ and makes us like Christ. And so that's why when Barnabas comes to this church, he doesn't come critically saying, here are all the things you guys need to fix. It says he comes glad. Why? Because he saw the grace of God. He saw all the things that are going on right in this church. I mean, Barnabas could have found something to complain about in this church plant, right? Like, I'm sure there's something. You guys don't have a women's ministry yet? Where's your homeless outreach? What are you all doing? No, he comes glad. Especially since he's coming to a different culture. He's from Jerusalem, this church that's, you know, a little more hoity-toity. And he's going to this multi-dimensional, diverse church in Antioch. And he's probably like, you guys do things different than we do. What is this Hillsong United? You know what I'm saying? Like, why y'all clap so much? This is different. Barnabas is coming here like, there are people wearing flip-flops. We wear suits and ties in Jerusalem. Like, your worship leader has tattoos? Like, I'm sure there's something he could have complained about. No, he doesn't come in that spirit. Barnabas recognizes the cultural differences. He doesn't try and change the church in Antioch. He doesn't focus on what's not happening yet. He celebrates all the good work God is doing in and among them. Good men like Barnabas... Men full and women full of the Holy Spirit and faith, people content in Jesus are easy to please. Let me say that again. If you are full of the Holy Spirit and you are following Jesus, you should be easy to please, like Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't complaining about the little things. He was celebrating the big things. That's why Barnabas is such a happy guy. That's why people like being around him. Verse 23, because he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Are you sitting here thinking, I'm not sure people like being around me? Are you sitting here thinking, I'm not much of an encourager, I'm not much of a paraclete? Here's what you do. Like Barnabas, fix your eyes on the grace of God and watch him change you. Look at Jesus taking your sin and giving you his grace. Look at the spirit of God in you, changing you into someone who looks like Jesus despite your natural condition. Look at the people in this room around you right now that Jesus has given to you to love you and to paraclete you. Look at all the baptisms and salvations and good work God is doing here. Look at all the good in your life and realize that it is all grace, meaning we don't deserve any of it, but he gave it to us anyway. And here's what I found about most unhappy, ungrateful, easy to displease church members. They've grown dull to the grace of God. They're disconnected from their two parakaleos, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so they need something else or someone else to fill that gap in their soul. They're looking for someone else to make them happy. So they come to a church and they're like, you guys don't do this enough? Well, that doesn't satisfy me. And that's why they tend to rotate from church to church, perhaps even relationship to relationship, maybe even hobby to hobby, endlessly disappointed because they're not full fixing their eyes on the grace that Jesus has given them. Barnabas shows us a disciple of Jesus Christ does not just have 
good theology, he or she also has good culture. If you intellectually know the doctrines of grace, but don't have a heart that is happy because of that grace, well, then you don't actually know the doctrines of grace yet. We see the grace of Jesus, and it makes us glad and easy to please. And you know what's crazy about this last point on this? This sort of encouraging culture, these kind of encouraging members like Barnabas actually aid evangelism. Because of this, end of verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. Isn't that crazy? Like encouragement can mean more people following Jesus. There's this crazy reality that what we say isn't the only thing that matters. How it feels to be around us matters just as much. There are countless people in this church who have believed the gospel and grown exponentially in their faith, not because their mind was changed intellectually, but because their heart was softened relationally by you. They were welcomed here, encouraged here, loved here in a way they didn't experience anyone else. That guy, Jose, sitting in the back with the glasses. Say hi, Jose. Sorry, he didn't know I was going to do this. His, his story was like, I came here and I was welcomed. I felt the gospel like I never had before, and it opened up to hearing the gospel. Culture matters. Encouragement matters. How the room feels because we're in it matters. And you need to know that your life is our church's most effective sermon. This sermon is supplemental to how you live. And so we need to be people like Barnabas, parakaleos, people like Jesus who come alongside even broken people to comfort them, to commit to them, yet at the same time speak the truth to them boldly. And we... Are, we want to be a people who never stop celebrating the grace of God like Barnabas, never stopping to find things to rejoice in and squinting to find things to complain about. Church in Antioch was special, man. They got some good evangelists. They got some good encouragers. And then thirdly, they got some great educators. I'm going to breeze through these last few. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas is helping lead this church. And he's like, man, I need some help. I know a lot of church planters saying that. I need some other leaders. Well, Barnabas is like, I'm going to go find Saul. So he travels four days, walks 100 miles to get Saul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, to help him lead this Antioch church. Verse 26, when they found Saul, Barnabas brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. So what did they do for a whole year? They taught. They educated. They team teach at this church for a year. And we're seeing here again the importance of teaching in the church. You cannot disciple someone without teaching them. Music alone does not grow people. Mercy ministry alone will not make disciples. If you're, if you're a new Christian, you're here this morning. The thing you need most is good, proper, biblical instruction in a healthy community, a church. You need good food. Spiritual food. You see, the people in Baltimore, people far from God, the thing they need most in this world is not a sandwich. It's not even a job. It's the gospel. And the gospel changes us and makes us into people that get good jobs often and eat good sandwiches. But we need Jesus before we need anything else. So that's why they're focused on teaching. I mean, that's what Jesus did, right? I mean, Jesus, he, he saw the crowds. And what's, what did he do that says, he, the text says, Matthew 5, he opened his mouth and he taught them. That's what Saul and Barnabas did and that's what we're going to do. Now, I recognize we live in a day and age that doesn't really like authoritative teaching. We prefer roundtable discussions. Respect my truth, and I'll respect yours. I mean, bro, you can't even be a comedian today without getting slapped or tackled. 
if Dave Chappelle is offensive, I'm screwed. Because I'm saying things that are way more offensive in our day and age because of the scriptures. And we don't care. We're trying to please one person, and he's on a throne. And so we are to be a people who love to hear the word taught and love to teach it to others. I mean, we believe God wrote a book. There's nothing else we want to know more than this book. And so to be a faithful church member is to receive teaching like the church in Antioch did and to love to teach. And there are many of you in this room, we have a a very educated demographic of people in our church. Many of you have spent thousands of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of hours going to college, listening to two-hour lectures. You had, no, you had no problem with learning. Many of you know calculus and algebra and all kinds of things I know nothing about. And many of you have no problem sitting there for two hours on YouTube watching an educational video on something you're passionate about. But yet, many of these same kinds of Christians who spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours on these things cringe at a sermon over 25 minutes. Why? Maybe because our affections are on the wrong things. Maybe we need to fix our eyes on the grace of Jesus and we want to be taught. One of our members, Alyssa, who's sitting right there. Say hi, Alyssa. I'm just calling everyone out this morning. You better watch out. I'm going to come for you. Anyway, Alyssa, she was here the first service, and she's also here listening to the sermon in the second service. And she does that, like, pretty much every week. I don't know how you're still locked in. It's a lot of talking that you're listening to. And, you know, I say the same thing the first service and the second service, right? So <laughs> I actually asked her last week. I'm like, why do you stay for both services to listen to the sermon twice? You know what she said to me? I want the word of God to dwell in me richly. I want the word of God to dwell in me richly. I think she's a wonderful example. I want to be taught to follow Jesus. And this is why our gathering is centered on the teaching of the word of God. Because we want to be taught. Like Saul and Barnabas did. And even our teaching, the way we listen to teaching, will have an evangelistic effect to the people that come. You know, my dad, who's a Muslim, he's not a Christian... He came, surprised me, by coming to our gathering on Easter. I'm like about to preach, and he shows up. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing here? He's like, hey, son. And he listened to the whole sermon, and I, you know, he came over afterwards, and I asked him, Dad, what would you think of the service? He was like, it was good. I, I thought your content could have been better. <laughs> well, it makes sense. We pretty much disagree on everything, so it makes sense he doesn't like my content. You're a Muslim. I'm a Christian. I'm teaching the Bible. Like, come on, man. But he also said, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me being at your church was I was amazed at how locked in the entire congregation was at your teaching. I mean, look at all, you all, you are all locked in right now. Like, even the way you listen to the teaching has an evangelistic effect on people who don't believe. Why are these people so locked into this? Because we want the word of God to dwell in us richly. We want to be educated in the things of Jesus. And it changes people when they see it. And so you see this combo so far of evangelizing, encouraging, and educating church members, making an impact in this really lost city. So much so, next verse, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Again, they didn't call themselves Christians. The lost people around them saw this community that was evangelizing, encouraging, educating, and they were like, man, these guys are different. They're Christians. They're little Christ's. 
And this is because the church in Antioch did not blend into the culture of the city. They didn't look like everyone else. They were clearly set apart because of their consistent evangelism, encouragement, and education. They're clearly different, right? Yet at the same time, they weren't so different that they completely rejected the city and the culture and lived like Amish people far away. They didn't have a bomb shelter approach. They embraced this third way, this gospel approach of loving the city, engaging with the city, yet being very distinct from the city. And this helped them redeem the city. And so there's this church of Christians who are evangelists, encouragers, educators. And then fourthly, we see they're givers. Verse 27, these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the church here, there's, there's going to be a famine. So the disciples, verse 29, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this great church, fourthly, was generous. They find out a famine is coming. It's going to hurt the other brothers and sisters in Judea. And they give money to help this church in Judea. They don't call the church in Judea like, you know, the competition across town. They call them brothers and sisters with the same Savior and the same mission. You know, we want to follow in the same pattern. We're not here just to have Bible study. We want to do this too. And so we give 16% of our entire budget to help good gospel work, to help people in need around the world. In fact, we give uh, 16% this year is projected to be $68,500 of our budget that we're giving away, like the church gave away here in Antioch to the people in Judea. It's because we're all on Team Jesus. We're all trying to reach the world together. Now, for that to happen, what needs to happen first? The members need to be generous. They need to give. 16% of the whole church budget doesn't mean much if the church isn't giving. And why would the church not want to give? I mean, the local church is the hope of the world, right? We give to what we love, and Jesus loves his church more than he loves anything else in the universe. And if we love Jesus, we'll love what he loves and give what he gave to. We give sacrificially to his church because he gave up his life to us. And I know some of you have been so blessed with opportunities, connections, education that perhaps you didn't pay completely for, and you now have a salary that you never thought you would. You're making more money than you ever dreamed. Or maybe you just have a good, consistent salary. Are you using it to be generous with the people around you, and particularly the church that you've committed to? In the war against darkness, money is missions ammunition. And when we give to the church, we're reloading the church to do mercy ministry, church planning, to pay for the utilities and rent of this building, and the staffing needs to care for you. How do I do that practically? 10% of your salary is what Jesus suggests in Luke chapter 11. It's a good starting point. And 10% is nothing, right, when we think about how Jesus gave us 100% of everything. And so this is a generous church, giving generously to other churches and people in need. Notice they give the money to the elders and trust them to steward it well. We do the same with accountability, obviously. Now, so we have a church of evangelists, encouragers, educators, givers. Now we're going to skip chapter 12. We're going to cover that next week because it doesn't really cover the church in Antioch. Chapter 13, we see the final two descriptions of the church in Antioch. Number five, they're gatherers. Chapter 13, verse 1, this church in Antioch had prophets and teachers, chapter 13, verse 1 says. So we get the starting lineup of the leaders in the church in Antioch. These are likely the pastors or the elders of this church. Scholars call them the Antioch Five, which I think is pretty baller. 
We need a name for our elders, like the Baltimore Four. Does not really hit it for me. I like Antioch Five a little bit better. All right, who's in the Antioch Five, the starting lineup? Number one, we got point guard, Barnabas. Barnabas is an all-star, man. This guy was the son of comfort, the encourager. He was also a Jew from Cyprus. Then, and I want you to notice here, look at the diversity of the leaders of this church. Secondly, we have Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger literally means dark or black. Most scholars believe Simeon was from North Africa. So we have a black man. We have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, so we have another North African black man. Then Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So the fourth in our lineup, we have a, a royal upper-class guy who's friends with the governor of the region. So this would be like a lifelong friend of Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. If you're lifelong friends with Larry Hogan, I feel like you're doing pretty good. I mean, Manan was probably the kind of guy, you know, you're, you're at a restaurant for lunch, and they deliver the bill, and you're just waiting a good 10 seconds to see what happens, because the guy can afford to pay for us, right? I mean, let's just see what he does. If he doesn't do anything, I'll, I'll put my card down. Anyway, you get the idea, right? Like, this guy's an upper-class dude. And then Saul, finally, who's a brilliant Jewish theologian. He's the academic of the group, may I even say the nerd of the group. And this leadership, I mean, look at the diversity of this team that's leading this church. And this diversity would have been shocking in Antioch. Antioch was actually, though it was diverse, Ethnically and religiously, it was segregated. You would go to different parts of the city to meet different cultures and different religions. But this church, you find the whole city gathered together in a unique way. And it's led by the people that reflect the demographics of that city. All kinds of ethnicities, socioeconomic classes, educational levels are helping lead the church. Any kind of lost person from Antioch would have walked into this church and say, Oh, there's someone like me here. And perhaps that's why this church in Antioch had such a heart for the nations, because the nations were in this church. I mean, this is, this is our hope for RCC, a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class, multi-generational church with a leadership as diverse as the church itself. A church that reflects the demographics of the city and is attractive to all kinds of people. So if you're here this morning, you're like, ah, I'm older than everyone else, or I look like everyone else, or I'm not educated like everyone else. The question you should not be asking is, am I wanted here? The question is, how soon can I lead here? Because we want you to lead. We need your perspective. Obviously, you need to meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. We're not going to skip over those. But if you're different, you're the exact kind of person we need to influence our decisions. Diverse giftings, diverse locations, diverse backgrounds, diverse ethnicities. And I believe a church staff should be diverse because different backgrounds mean different perspectives. And different perspectives means a more comprehensive leadership team. And you can reach more people when you have different types of people on the leadership team, right? In fact, I have a, a friend who, uh, before he came to Christ, he was uh, from inner city L.A., Hispanic guy. And before he became a Christian, he wore baggy jeans and Timberlands. And he accepted Christ, and he became a preacher, and he ended up starting to preach in baggy jeans and Timberlands. And some folks listening to him said, you know, you should start wearing suits and stop wearing Timberlands because you don't seem to know what you're talking about when you look like that. To which I would say, you're an idiot. <laughs> because, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but you get my idea, right? Like, Jesus doesn't want to take us where we're from and make us to look like everywhere else. This is why the Spirit descended in Acts 2 and all different types of people didn't change their ethnicity when they came to Christ. They remained their culture and followed Jesus in their culture. 
And so there are somebody else who wears baggy jeans and Timberlands, and they hear that guy preach, and they're like, oh, Jesus reaches people like me. We need that guy's perspective. We don't need to make him look like everyone else. And so we see a church here that looked different, acted different, provided different perspectives, and this gave an evangelistic aid because different types of people connected with different types of people, and it gave a comprehensive leadership team with all different kinds of perspectives, and this is what we need, friends. Finally, evangelists, encouragers, educators, givers, gatherers, and we need a church of goers. My last point. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now notice here that this church is continuously present tense, worshiping and fasting, and then this precedes God's divine leading. To hear from God and be used by God, we need to first continually be in a state of total dependence upon him. We see in Antioch a lot of really gifted men and women. And yet these really gifted men and women are still praying, fasting, and worshiping. Supernatural gifting does not exclude you from a total dependence on God. And this is not a one-time, you know, once every quarter prayer meeting. This is a continual state of praying, worshiping, fasting. Fasting indicates how deeply they depended upon God. What is fasting? You might be new to church and not familiar with it. Just simply, fasting is an exclamation point behind the sentence, God, I want you more than I want anything else in the world. I want you more than I want food. I want you more than I want entertainment. I want you more than I want my phone. So I'm going to abstain from these things so I can cling to you more. That's simply what fasting is. And we should do it. And the worshiping. They're adoring Jesus because he loves us more than we deserve, doesn't he? Worshiping is not just singing a song. Worshiping is living with gratefulness for all that God has done for us. Like, are you kidding me? The God of the universe picked me, saved me, and wants to use me. That's worship. You know, John Stott, the great English minister, he's a good example of this. He wrote all of his sermons on his knees. Sounds uncomfortable, but effective. He was named by Time Magazine as one of the most top, top 100 most influential people in the world. They asked him, if you could do it all over again, what would you do different? He said, I would have prayed more. And so this church is a little bit like John Stott, or maybe John Stott's like this church. <laughs> They're fasting, praying, worshiping, and God makes it clear to this church, I want you to do what you did here in Antioch, starting this church, and do it all over the world. Catalyze a church planning movement. And that is a common theme in the book of Acts, right? Worship leads to mission. The church of Acts is like worshiping Jesus, reveling in his grace, and they're like, we want everyone to experience this gospel in this community. Let's go this place where it's not known to see them worship Jesus in the same way we are. Worship precedes mission, and then mission leads to more worship around the world. If you don't have a zeal for the king, then you won't have a zeal for the king's mission. And the nearer we get to God, and the more we adore God, the more intensely missionary we become. And so the church, knowing God wants them to plant more churches, Ask, okay, who's going to go for us? Who's going to bring this gospel where it's not been named? And really, everyone in this church is already going. Some are going across the street to share the gospel, but some need to go across the globe to share the gospel. And the Holy Spirit makes it clear, verse 2, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them to. 
And so this church's vision in Antioch is RCC's vision, not just to be a big gathering of Christians in one room, but to be a church that goes locally and sends globally. In fact, our vision statement is to be a church planning movement fueled by the gospel that reaches Baltimore City and cities around the world. Put simply, we want to be Antioch. Now, three questions for you as we reflect on this point and as we reflect on going. Question number one, is your entire life surrendered to Christ this morning? If the Holy Spirit in our church said to you today, go here, would you? Would you? You know, each of us is called to place a blank check on the table and to place our yes on the table, and God makes it clear where we go and what we give. Have you placed your blank check on the table? Have you placed your yes on the table? And are you ready to go where he sends you? If you're not, then I think it's fair to ask, am I following Jesus or myself? Second thing you need to ask, are you abiding in Christ? You know, I think we'd all prefer a clear vision. Holy Spirit says, go here. But instead, God often does something better. He asks us to daily seek after him. You know, these church members are fasting, praying, worshiping day after day after day. And when we do that, this causes us to love him more after the decision than we did before the decision. Because he's led us on a journey with him. The goal is not a specific direction. The goal is knowing God more. And so this is not a passive surrender, figuring out God's will. It is an active surrender. We don't just sit back and watch Netflix and say, God, all right, make it clear. We worship, we pray, we fast, and God slowly over time. He tends to make it clear where we need to go, what we need to do, and what we need to give. Third question, are you resting in Christ this morning? No matter where he sends you to go, he promises to go with you. Whether you're staying in Baltimore or going to Belarus, Jesus says, I am with you even until the end of the age. So we go with confidence. Or we go locally with confidence as well. Last verse, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And this begins the adventure of Saul and Barnabas, bringing the gospel all around the world. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. All right, who's going to go, guys? Who are we going to send from our church to the nations? God says, I want you to send Saul. No, 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 you can't meet Saul. Like the apostle, you know, the guy who wrote a quarter of the New Testament, he's the guy who's leaving. Him? No, take anyone else, not him. Barnabas? Who's going to comfort me? Who's going to encourage me? Barnabas gives me back rubs on Wednesday afternoons. Like, what the heck? I don't want to lose Barnabas. You see, the church in Antioch isn't just generous with their money. They're generous with their people. The church is stepping out in faith to send their best leaders. You know, we often want to send our worst, don't we? Like, oh, you want to plan a church? Awesome. Let's go. Get you out the door. The church in Antioch is willing to give away their very best in obedience to God and for the good of the nations. And friends, when we give our best, whether it's our people or our money or whatever it is, we get more than we give. Good Christianity is bad math. You give away your best and somehow God gives you more than you ever had. Why? Because when we give our best, even our best people, when we give what we're most tempted to rely on, we become more dependent on the most reliable person there is, Jesus, and less, reliable, less reliant on the things that tend to be flaky. And because when we send our best, we get to experience something of the missionary heart of the Father. You know, God sent his best 
Jesus to us. God had one son, and he made him a missionary. We want to imitate our missionary father who sent heaven's best to save us, that he might bring us to God. And so when we become an Antioch, when we give what we're tempted to so rely on, when we send out the people we love the most, it hurts, but we preach the gospel to our hearts, and we remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so this hurts to be this kind of church, a church like Antioch, but we're going to do it anyway. And we want some of you to stay. I mean, it doesn't mean you're not faithful to Jesus if you stay. But some of you will go, and we'll send you out excited, rejoicing. Some will stay, some will go, but all of us contribute to the movement of the gospel in the world. And if we choose to be a church like Antioch, a sending church who gives our best, we're going to receive more than we could ever do receive by holding on, clinging to the things that we cherish. And so in that spirit, as we close, I want to invite up three brothers that are our best, that we plan on sending soon so we can pray for them. These are our, some of our solemn Barnabases. I don't know if David wrote a quarter of the New Testament, but he wrote Foundations, which is in the bookstore. So. <laughs> uh, so here are three of the brothers that we're preparing to send over the next year or two to plant churches around the world. Da- David is one of our pastors. He actually was a, he would call himself a nominal Christian or a casual Christian when he came to RCC. He made Jesus the Lord of his life. He was developed here, is now a pastor in our church, and we're sending him and his wife Alyssa to Japan, which is the second most unreached people group in the world. And you are moving in six and a half months. Six and a half months. We're going to lose some of the, one of the most amazing couples in our church family. Secondly, we have Orlando. Orlando Cordero has been with us for about four years. He also has been through RCC Institute. He leads a gospel community in Towson right now, which is growing really quickly. Praise the Lord. Yeah. And his hope is to plant a church in the Towson area, that that gospel community would become its own church. And losing him and his wife, Tiffany, would be a huge loss. But we're excited to see the gospel take root in Towson, potentially. Not sure about the timing yet, but we're asking the Holy Spirit for discernment in that. And then finally, we have Tim. Tim joined us about a year ago to do a residency with, with us. Now he's, he's one of our staff members. And he's also put his yes on the table. And he's, he and his wife, uh, Jillian, are preparing to plant a church. We're not sure where or when yet, but we're asking the Spirit for discernment in that. But here's what I'm saying. We're prepared to give some of our best so God can bless us even more. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray for these brothers, brothers as they prepare to go. Uh, but this is a challenge to you. That if they leave, we need new leaders to step up. And we trust that God will will replace them like he did in Antioch. So let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, thank you for this church. We pray that you would make us like a church in Antioch that sends our very best. And I pray for our best here, David, Orlando, and Tim, that you would send them out well. That you would help them to allow the gospel to take root in the mission field that they're called to. Whether that's Japan, Towson, or another area of Baltimore City. We pray, God, that you would give them the success that Saul and Barnabas had and help our church to come alongside them, to support them financially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. We pray for success for these brothers as they go on mission, taking a huge risk, giving up their very lives to build your kingdom. And we pray for our church that we would step up and care for them and also replace them as best we can with new leaders. And God, make this church one that gives you much glory. 
like the church in Antioch did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.